Well, good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's. We're so glad you've joined us on this summer Sunday with our city uh, opening up. We're pleased you joined us online. Now, if you were ever tempted to think that the Bible is just full of, you know, fluffy lambs and rainbows, uh, well, our passage this morning will have burst that bubble. Instead of rainbows and lambs, with this parable of the wedding feast, we have weeping and gnashing of teeth and uh, people being flung into outer darkness. We're on week three of our summer series, uh, looking at the parables of Jesus, those fantastic stories that Jesus told that just kind of grab you, uh, sometimes painfully, and won't let you go. Socrates famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And maybe we can recast that this morning as the unexamined faith is not worth having. Because this parable gives us an opportunity to examine the gospel, the good news that Jesus brings, maybe for the first time or maybe in a renewed way this morning. And some scholars believe that the reason Jesus taught in parables in the first place was, uh, you know, why not just come out and say it, Jesus? But the reason he taught in parables was actually to stay out of jail. His often cryptic stories giving him deniability with the religious authorities who were out to trip him up. I never said that. What are you talking about? And our dark story this morning, deliberately not naming names, is being used by Jesus to convey a deep spiritual truth that then leads us to a point of decision and then action. This morning, we're going to see that each of us uh, gathered here online are invited to a continuous banquet. And thank goodness, there is a dress code. We're being invited to a never-ending party and what we wear, it matters. But as we begin, I want to very briefly touch on the role that hard passages of the Bible play because they're actually important in our spiritual growth. And they're also the passages that friends or work colleagues who are spiritually searching will point to as a reason why they can't uh, follow Jesus, why uh, they can't be Christians. Because you see, the Bible is not simply a book about nice people or a conventionally nice God. No. Instead, it's a book about a free God's relationship, a free God's relationship with often rebellious people like me and you. So there are going to be passages in this book that are hard to swallow. But these often terrifying passages are important because they expose not only how powerless I actually am, COVID's been a good reminder too, but they also expose a free God who is radically different from me, whose mind I cannot completely read, uh, whose decisions I cannot completely predict, and whose actions I can't seem to control. Barbara Brown Taylor is an American writer, and she said this, Difficult parts of the Bible pry our fingers away from our own ideas about who God is and how God should act. With that in mind, let's turn to our parable. If you've got it in front of it, you might want to keep it open. Because the context here is key. 
Jesus has found himself in significant conflict with the Pharisees and other religious authorities. They've been directly challenging Jesus's right to say the things that he said. And we're just days away from them uh, trying to set him up and have him be captured by the Roman authorities. Teach in parables, stay out of jail. But Jesus was no shrinking violet, though, and he'd already accused these religious leaders of being in direct contempt of God. And our parable is also addressed to these same religious leaders. Verse 1, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. He now continues his blistering indictment of them. And while Jesus clearly had a specific audience in mind for this parable, it's been intentionally recorded so that we would come to know of the invitation to that continuous banquet and that, thank goodness, there is a dress code. So Jesus sets the stage with a wedding feast being hosted by his king for a son. And in an ancient society predicated upon honor and shame, nothing could bestow more honor than being invited to a royal wedding. Think Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And as an aside, I'm still bitter that I was not invited to officiate at that wedding. They had to have a bishop. Uh, Meghan Markle would have liked a female bishop. Uh, she used to live in Toronto, and I have British citizenship. I would have been perfect. Anyway, think about a royal wedding. The king is hosting the feast. But conflict quickly surfaces. And first, the king summons his guests via his servants. But we're told in verse 3 that they would not come. The king is snubbed by every single person that he invites. Everyone. And at this point, the king faces a tremendous amount of shame that by ancient standards must be remedied. The disrespectful invitees face the likelihood of some kind of reputation, uh, uh, retribution. But surprisingly, this king then graciously offers a second invitation. Verse 4. Tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. In other words, you don't know what you're missing. Please reconsider. And while this isn't literal, begging on one's knees, it might as well be the royal equivalent. The king really wants these people at the party, and he's not ashamed to wear his heart on his sleeve. But then the conflict, it takes an ugly turn. Some of those invited, they simply paid no attention, off to work or to tend their financial investments. And the rest, however, they rough up the king's servants and they swarm them in an act of mob violence and kill them. Okay, now, now the king's angry. And in what would have been a culturally appropriate response for a king at the time, he kills those who murdered his servants and rejected not only his first invitation, but also his second invitation. There are consequences to rejecting this invitation. We'll look at them in a minute. But despite this horrible turn, the wedding feast is still happening and the king is undeterred. He issues now a third invitation. And at this time, it goes not to the select few who have rejected, but to everyone. Do you remember last week when I said that God is a shameless lover who has shockingly low standards? 
And in verse 10, it notes that these people are ones who are on the road, which means they would have been prostitutes or lepers or even tax collectors. The dregs of Israelite society assumed to be completely unworthy by the religious establishment and a very particular care and concern for Jesus. These people, they accepted the royal invitation. The wedding hall is now filled with guests and away the party goes. So first we see that there is a continuous banquet happening and second that we're invited. And the original invitees were the religious establishment, but they were in the process of rejecting Jesus. And let's be frank, we the listeners, we're meant to realize that we are the invitees on the road. We're the unworthy ones who receive the third invitation, the unworthy, those who may be successful uh, in many worldly ways, but we're still broken, we're still lost in our relationships, in our attitudes towards the environment and money. We're hunted by ambition, we're trapped by desire. And we all in different ways reject God's hopes for our lives. And the banquet? Well, at the minimum, that's a, a vivid image for what's on offer for those who've said yes to God's grace and are now enjoying forgiveness and new life in Jesus, which sounds a bit pious. So what does it actually mean? Well, let's unpack this image of a banquet just a little bit more, just for a minute, because it's used in the Bible in a few similar ways. It's used to refer to the church on earth now. You know, the church not as a building, because those come and go, but the church as a group of people, three or 3,000, who were gathered around that carpenter from Nazareth and are thanking God for who he is and what he's done. The church as a party with God as the host. And another use of the image of the banquet is being those followers of Jesus who were gathered around a God's throne at the end of time. The banquet image is a party that is happening now but can also continue into eternity. We're being invited now to enjoy that God, what God wants to give us, purpose, identity, direction, forgiveness, satisfaction, and the list goes on. But it's also an invitation to a celebration that goes on when this earthly life is over. Because Toronto still has a 100% mortality rate. And at something which our beauty obsessed, yet weirdly aging averse, yet euthanasia affirming culture struggles with. Our earthly lives are fleeting. None of us are ever more than a text or a phone call away from news that will change our lives forever. We're never far away from experiencing how fragile life is. Uh, Pink Floyd said it well in the song. When I was a child, I caught a fleeting glimpse out of the corner of my eye. I turned to look, but it was gone. I cannot put my finger on it now. The child has grown. The dream is gone. The party that we're being invited to, it's for eternity, which is why the invitation's also a serious one. 
This is not just some Facebook pop-up ad to a furniture warehouse event, or even a beautifully engraved invitation to an in-person gala. Can you imagine? This is more serious than all of that. This is an invitation from the creator of the universe, the king of space and time. This is a serious invitation to spend eternity in the fullness of God's presence, where we're clearly told in the scriptures, there's no more pain, there's no suffering, there's no grief, there's no tears, only deep and lasting contentment. We can, of course, like all invitations, decline and choose to spend our lives now and for eternity without God and all that God has to offer. So this banquet, one, it comes with an invitation, two, the invitation is serious, and three, there is a dress code. I remember uh, a previous summer where Tim and I were invited to two weddings that were gonna take place within a few weeks of each other, both with explicitly stated dress codes. Uh, the first was black tie, and the second one was like, I think it said summer casual, flip-flops uh, encouraged. And I remember I was in a mad dash trying to figure out if I could find a dress that I could wear to both weddings. Too bad, had to buy two dresses. But this continuous banquet, it has a dress code for which we can actually be incredibly thankful. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man that had no wedding garment. This guest, who didn't adhere to the dress code, is promptly evicted from the wedding and thrown to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, a, a Hebrew idiom uh, figure of speech, which means profound grief. Apparently, the poor guy didn't read the small print on his invitation. Dress code sounds like an exclusive affair. It doesn't sound very inviting or inclusive. But let's turn that on its head. When we realize that when all is said and done, we are all naked before God, who's seen it all, knows it all, we're going to want to be dressed, clothed, and we know this instinctively because all every day we try to dress to impress God with our careers, with our children, with our charitable donations, which are all good things, uh, mind you. But they're not the dress code for this party. To attend this never-ending party, we need to be dressed by the king himself. Paul, an early Christian writer, wrote that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be clothed with Christ. We cannot show up at this banquet and say, let me in. I've got a great outfit on. All my good deeds, my donations, my wise decisions. That would be the most intimidating, exclusive party ever. And if the dress code was my moral goodness uh, and my general niceness, Jenny Anderson would not get past the bouncers. But for this party, the dress code is nothing that I can pull out of my own closet. It has to be borrowed. And apparently clothing rental is the latest environmentally conscious trend. And what we are borrowing is the goodness and moral perfection of Jesus himself. This banquet, it's remarkable. Not only are we all invited in the first place, remember God has low standards, 
but in fact the invitation is graciously repeated and we're even given the clothes we need to wear. None of this stressful, you know, am I wearing uh, the right kind of stuff business. Here, says Jesus, take my life. I took your brokenness and sin on the cross. You can have my righteousness, my perfection. Welcome to the banquet. All the parables that Jesus uh, used were intended to convey deep spiritual truth and lead us to a point of decision. God never forces our hand, doesn't play passive-aggressive games, doesn't do subtle guilt trips. Each of us is invited to an eternal party where we can enjoy the complete healing of our brokenness and the fullness of God's presence. But invitations, they don't answer themselves. And even silence is an answer. I'm going to pray in a minute. If you're already a disciple, learning how to follow Jesus, then please take this opportunity to thank God for that future promise that God has given us and the clothes that God has even given us to wear. And if you're spiritually searching, think about coming to the party. It's all good. There's a dress code come and be clothed with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the present and eternal banquet that you graciously invite us to. Open our hearts to receive your invitation and the righteousness and holiness of Jesus that you offer to each one of us. Amen.